You're listening to KBOO Portland. This is Erin Yankee, longtime programmer here at KBOO. On March 16th, due to the COVID-19 crisis, KBOO canceled all classes, meetings, and events, and closed the station to all volunteers and staff. We also canceled our spring membership drive. However, a generous anonymous donor agreed to match every dollar listeners contribute up to $20,000 by May 31st. If you're financially able at this time, we hope you'll contribute to KBOO now at kboo.fm slash give. You can also mail your donation to KBOO at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, Oregon, 97214. The station is working hard to ensure the health and safety of our volunteers, staff, and community, and to provide the volunteer support needed during this time of physical distancing to ensure our eclectic, high-quality programming remains on-air and online. Thank you for your support in making this happen. We really appreciate it. Come join in the conversation with M.L. Laurie on our new podcast, What the Hell is Going On? A conversation about our human experience, our human condition, and the obstacles that we all have to happiness. This podcast is an extension of the segment, Let's Stop for a Minute, that M.L. produced for the KBU radio show, The Politics of Living. So go to kboo.fm slash what the hell is going on, or you can go to www.kboo.fm audio podcast and what the hell is going on. You're listening to KBOO Portland 90.7 on your FM dial. Stay tuned for the talking earth, but first an important message from your intrepid board op. I want to remind everyone that you can donate today at kboo.fm slash giving online. We know times are tough, so if you're not able to donate, it's okay. But if you can, please show show your support for this free community resource. What's that? No one could hear me? All right. I want to remind everyone that you can donate today at kboo.fm slash giving online. We know times are tough, so if you're not able to donate, it's okay. But if you can, please show your support for this free community resource. Plus, all donations will be matched until May 31st. KB. Dot FM, K-B-O-O dot FM, excuse me. Now stay tuned for the Talking Earth and Sophia and Amanda and their guest, Nancy Deer. Hi, and welcome to Talking Earth. I'm your host, Amanda Hellstrom. And you're listening to K-B-O-O FM Portland. And tonight we are with um, the lovely and talented Nancy Deer and her guide dog, Brew. Well, he's not really a guide dog, but he's a what? spirit he's a, animal he's a brew. Life, he's a life he's a guide. guide. He's yes, a, life guide he's a brew. Dave, he's a betterment. Yeah. Um, and uh, Nancy is going to read some of her stuff tonight. So I've known Nancy for five, five years. Yeah, that something like right. that. Um, and she came into my life, into the poetry world at uh, New Poet Challenge which was one of the reading series that Sophia and I hosted back in the day. That was mostly you. Um, well, you told me to do the heavy lifting, but you got all the glory. That was the plan. Yeah. Moo ha ha ha. Yeah, and um, Nancy blew every way away when, when she read, and um, so I thought that we would bring her back so she could... Uh, blow you guys away so well, thank you very much so why don't you uh read us some of your work <sighs> okay <laughs> um so um i'm going the first thing that i'm going to read is a piece that is about um sort of about my maternal grandfather we'll, we'll see okay so 
I was 16 years old in the house that belonged to my best friend's boyfriend's parents. We spent the day tripping our balls off on acid that we bought from one of my favorite punks in the park that looks like a Thomas Kincaid painting where everyone five years older than us gets married. I know the house was dark then. We were all settled into our own corners, exhausted in our own corners, trying to sleep off the edges of coming down. I remember drifting off to sleep, watching the gray of the wall and the gray of the ceiling expand and contract with my breathing. I was dreaming, I was dreaming that I heard my mother's voice, and then I was awake, awake, but I was still hearing my mother's voice. As I felt the fault lines between brain plates slip back into normal and understood, there was an answering machine, and my mother was inside it. Oh, I was not supposed to be there. I was supposed to be at Katie's house, and my mother didn't even know that Katie had a boyfriend or that her boyfriend had parents and that they had a house and an answering machine. But there she was, and she was talking, and she was telling me to go to the hospital. Just time to go to the hospital. You have to come say goodbye. Katie and I got into the dented green grasshopper that was her little green Kia before it's been crushed into bits. And we go down the street, just, just down the street, and I'm not sure that either one of us should be in a car, but we have to go because the robot that was my mother told me we have to go to the hospital. It's pink, and it looks like it's made of adobe. It's huge and looming on the hill that has a fountain lit up with rainbows blending softly at its feet. And it is, of course, more beautiful now than it will ever be otherwise. But even without the drugs, it's pretty majestic. I was born there. My grandfather died there. Except that's not really true. My grandfather died the time that he had a seventh stroke and they had to put him in the rehab unit. He died before I went to see him one day when my mother told me I had to. I watched a nurse spoon really grainy pudding oatmeal mush into his mouth that he could only open on one side, and I watched his eyes reel in terror, not being able to tell her no any way she could understand. That's the last time I saw my grandfather awake. What I wish was the last time was maybe six or seven times before, when I was maybe 13, maybe 14, gone to the cabin that smelled of mold that doesn't make you sick, and mothballs and bergamot in Lebanon, Missouri, where he taught me how to fish. He was sitting at the desk under all the clocks and the big light, and he showed me how to tie a fly fishing lure. I watched him wrap with stubby check fingers, a delicate creature like a fly and a worm and a butterfly. I watched the way he angled thread to make color and depth, tied sparkle and made the sharp edges secrets. We had breakfast of unevaporated dry milk and cornflakes, and he didn't really talk to me, but he always felt like home. An irony in that because he'd abandoned my mother as a child and she never got to have a home until she made one for herself. He had only come back into her life after my brother and I were actually children. When they began to reconcile, my grandfather was married, not to the woman that was my mother's mother who died by suicide before she could ever be my grandmother, before my mother was even a teenager, while my mother was still a child. My grandfather's new wife didn't want us to exist. So we weren't allowed in their house in Wichita, not until after she was dead. So instead, he would sneak off to the cabin in Lebanon on the trout fishing reserve, and we'd all stay in the cabin across from the old man with a fence that he used to shock squirrels. He showed me how to gut the fish that he showed me how to catch after he showed me how to stoke the fire to stay warm in the cold, cold morning. I woke up those days in the cabin to the sound of a clock chiming crystal. The man turned the monster man in the rehab facility wasn't my grandfather anymore. He was the memory of the man that used to be my grandfather, trapped inside a body that used to belong to him. My mother has a brother. My mother has a sister, too. But I don't have any aunts or uncles. It took a really long time to find my grandfather in the hospital, because I forgot to listen to what the robot that was my mother talking had said in the machine. I didn't know what floor or where to go. We ran up an escalator passing through children that had come because Hanson was doing a special visit to the children's ward. We were probably quite rude. I was alone at the end of the hallway and I walked right into the room where my grandfather, all white, on white, on white, on white, was breathing through a machine with a feeding tube he never wanted stuck in his gut. He hadn't moved or talked or tried to in weeks. 
My brother was there and my mother was there. There were doctors and nurses. And if anybody was mad at me, they forgot to tell me. I sat next to him and he lifted his fingers and I held his hand and he left. He waited for me, waited for me to find him, waited for me to get there so that he could hold my hand and say goodbye. I can't tell you why I care so much about my grandfather, Henry Vanis, Henny. We didn't call him grandpa or anything like it. I didn't start to get to know him until I was a teenager, and by the time that I cared about him, immigrating from the Czech Republic as a teenager, he was dead. By the time that my mother told me stories about why I didn't know him before, he was dead. He was my only extended family. Maybe I just loved the mulberry tree in his backyard that I could climb and just pick food from all day while he cracked open pistachios and watched Lonesome Dove. Maybe that he was a balding, stubby, weird little handsome man who collected fancy glass and had a small puff of a dog all white that he named Rambo. Maybe is that he was funny and maybe it's because his meatloaf is still the best meatloaf I've ever had. Maybe it's because his eyes twinkle the same way my dad's eyes twinkle and it feels like family and it feels like home. Even though he died in Tulsa, for some reason, we had to drive over to Kansas for the funeral. My mother was so distraught she threw out her back and my brother and I had to take turns driving on the highway. I remember being terrified. I remember listening to One They Might Be Giants tape on loop until I was tired of it but still kept going. I remember already knowing that I hated funerals. I remember feeling shame about being poor and fat and only having a dark navy dress and not a black one because I didn't have one in my size we could afford. I remember standing outside on concrete and watching the concrete to concrete expand and contract and tried to figure out if I actually knew a single person inside. I didn't. My mother's brother killed himself within the year, left behind the red sports car he bought with the money he made from stealing the cabin my grandfather had left for me. Rambo came to live with us. He missed my grandfather, too. He lost control of his bladder and had to wear a diaper all the time. It didn't keep up, stop him from keeping up with his new name, Willie Humper. I don't know if my grandfather was cremated or buried. It doesn't matter now, I guess. The ashes sent off from my gem collection can't be pressed into turquoise or melted to silver, can't be formed into tiger's eye agate. Instead, I tattooed rainbow trout on my back, one for him, one for me. Their eyes ugly and bulging, their skin delicate, impossible colors blending so softly. Hidden on my body, a secret somewhere I can't see. That was lovely. Always an amazing piece. Ah, it, thank it, you. But every time I hear it, it's like I'm reminded that Hanson was a thing. <laughs> <laughs> I like that that's your takeaway. <laughs> I mean, the fun, many. Right, the fun thing about, you know, writing the way that I do, um, people forget that they, when I'm reading that they get to laugh. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, why are you talking about the story? Why am I, that was funny. Am I, this is, uh, yeah, like, it's okay. It's laughing is part of it. It's part of how we <laughs> grieve. It's fine. Everything's fine. You want to read something else? Sure. <laughs> I'm like, except where is it? There it is. Oh, technology. Speaking, right. It's like, technology. I looked for the paper. I have paper versions of, like, my favorite things. But, you know, moving too many times and then, well, the paper disappears. But the Internet's forever. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, speaking of um, a piece of writing that people get real confused about whether or not they're allowed to laugh, here's a love poem that I wrote about my cat. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my inside voice wants to tell you about the number of bones a cat has, 245, and the sound her tendons will make crackling in the fire after she dies. That like all my loved ones, I intend to have her turn to gemstone, peridot, and smoky quartz. My outside voice wants to tell you about how her paws are tiny teddy bears, and when she's happy, she smells just like cinnamon toast. And I'm sure that she was sent from space and has been blogging for years and sending back recon, but has since defected and relaxed into her life of not quite luxury. My inside voice wants to tell you that like every creature made dependent by need or choice, I will care for her body until sick is too sick, until my bank account and my heartstrings concede that it is time for her to die. 
My outside voice is pressed to ramble on how she is so alien and clever, but always still textbook cat. That once she opened a drawer and dug out a box of catnip and tore open the cardboard and then the plastic and then made cat angels on the kitchen floor. How she rubs her face in cigarette ashes like nothing could be more delicious. How one time she spread ashes and butts all over my apartment, doing perfect Aikido somersault rolls into the blue glass Last Supper ashtray until I caught her and she pretended to be sleeping. My inside voice wants to tell you of the nights she kept flailing and wheezing and I sobbed endlessly at the caviar in a tuxedo t-shirt, cutoffs and flip-flops until the snarky vet tech told me asthma attacks weren't emergencies. I spent literally every penny I had on prednisone and tuna oil and never smoked indoors again. All of me wants to tell you how she will lick the salt off of Pringles and corn chips like a tiny deer, won't bite them herself, will only eat them if I break them into proper bite-sized pieces, that she will dive face first into a bowl of marinara and not come up for air until the bowl is shining and figured out how to open the full-size refrigerator just to chomp on celery. It's a true story. My inside voice is piecing a prayer that she will never die. That selfish, I will go before she does. That a feline lifetime of cheap and varied food, popcorn and boiled chicken when I was too poor, doesn't take her first. My grape ape, my chicky loo, my grumpiest slug, all of me wants to tell you how she can give a glance that's all side-eye, like when I try to tell her dad jokes or get her to appreciate my tiny dances. How when she had an accidental teen pregnancy, she abandoned the box I made for her in the closet, decided the safest place in the whole world was with me in bed, waking me up to the tiny squeak of newborn kitten nearly squashed by my slumbering shift. How she knows that playing a song in minor keys on repeat means it's time to lay her chin under mine, look only slightly annoyed, and let me splatter her in sloppy, awkward tears. How I'm sure she will never forgive me for giving her twins away, but still curls up under my arm to sleep when she thinks I'm too deep in dreaming to notice. How her belly is softer than chinchilla down, and I'm the only one who knows, though many slashed palms have tried. My inside voice wants to tell you always that she saved my life, that keeping her alive has kept me alive, that I am filled with drunken monologues about the ocean of love I feel for this little beast that taught herself how to op operate doorknobs and runs away every once in a while to terrorize the neighborhood, sunning herself in dappled shade for weeks, but always, always comes home. For 16 years, she has come home. For her, for her, I will always come home. But my inside voice, smaller than kitten squeak, says, where? Where is home someday without her? What do I do when she's only a body? Will 245 bones turn peridot, contain her rumbled raspy purr, the sparkle of drool in her smile, the paw tucked under cheek, the bubble and mew of her snore? The love beamed from here to her home planet, always, always staying, when all she had to do was open the door. Oh, do you love that Chicky Lou? Yeah. <laughs> I love how Brew is pretending to not be jealous. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you'll get your own poem someday, Brew. We've only known each other for four months. <laughs> You're very cute. I wish that the listeners here could actually see how cute your little face is. <laughs> so, um, what got you into writing? Um, there are many ways to approach that as a story. Um, <laughs> I know. Um, I. It's like asking, "What is gravity?" <laughs> right. This thing. This thing. What had happened was. Um, so apparently, when I was a small child, I locked myself in my room. Um, to write an opera when I was eight. I don't know that I knew what an opera even was, but that there were songs and many stories. Um, and uh, later, uh, 
in college, I, I took an extended intensive writing course because I knew that I was a writer. And then I stopped writing for about 10 years and um, met my ex-wife, who is um, not my favorite person. Uh, but she is a writer, and she encouraged me to pick up my writing again, um, much to her dismay, because I don't think she expected me to be good at it. Um, <laughs> or <laughs> for people to be actually interested in what I had to make. So when that happens, and one of my friends, not actually my ex-wife, but someone else challenged me for New Poet Challenge, and all of a sudden I was under pressure to actually do something with my writing again, and then engaged with it and was really stoked. <laughs> um Later, um, there was some conflict in my marriage, and I spoke with my mother about it because basically it turns out that two writers in the same household vying for the same events can get really messy. And my mother uh, <laughs> said to me, uh, well, couldn't you just give it up? And I was like, oh, wait, what? She's like, I mean, you've been doing it since you were little. Can't you just be done? <laughs> and that itself was a dancer. Like, oh, yeah, no, no. Okay, well, guess this is a thing that I do, and I will keep doing. <laughs> when I started writing again, my mother said, I have all this stuff that you wrote when you were a kid. Do you want to see it? And then she sent it to me, and I was like, Oh my God, this is so <laughs> bad. I remember grabbing the book, the little diary, and reading parts of it. And then she started throwing things at me. She throwed, you were throwing shoes. It was, I mean, that feels appropriate. It was awful. I mean, I still have all of the diaries and notebooks from when I was a kid in my cedar chest in my parents' basement. No one sees them. Yeah. Oh, uh, if I can relate one quick memory of... Uh, no. Right, so, <laughs> right before you were about to do New Poet Challenge, I, was, <laughs> I like to really, you know, like to tell people I'm looking forward to seeing you on mm -hmm, Tuesday, mm -hmm, da-da-da, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I gave that normal spiel to you, and your response was, I am terrified. I hope I don't die. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like me. <laughs> I like to sometimes get straight to the point. <laughs> Oh, see, I thought you were going to give a uh, thing for about my writing, and I was like, no, you cannot do that. Like, <laughs> I don't want to be murdered in my sleep. Okay, good. <laughs> so, so how about you read something else? Okay. More dead people. There's a lot of dead people. It's fine. I recently decided that Chicken's actually never going to leave. She's just going to start haunting me. Um, which, you know, that works. <laughs> um, okay. uh, this is more about this is a poem called My Father's House. Um, okay, here we go. My hardline atheist father, a Coca-Cola Santa Claus, white hair, white beard, pink skin, started mornings stretching on the porch in his tidy whiteies, even in Oklahoma winter. He told us, his two children, that he sold the house we grew up in to Jehovah's Witnesses that appeared with a briefcase full of cash. When I was six, I snuck through the closet, a trapdoor to the pantry sent by Nana's smirk for dreamsicles before dinner. Generics, too pale orange, not pale enough white, a box that screamed in yellow, saving money is done by spending it. She had abandoned him more than once. But the little money she made in the parking lot liquor shop, its name I never knew, just that it stung in the mouths of miners whispering her location at tailgates, paid some of the toppled mortgage, a legacy left behind in every closet of the house she left to him, royal purple bags with golden cords around their throats. Soon after dinner, she was dead and in a hole bigger than five of me. I knew I was supposed to cry, but I couldn't make it come out of me. Instead, watched his face, also tearless, a sorrow so dusty it tamped out his rage. Three, three crack houses, a dozen broken-down cars, three terrifying dogs, 
the blood stain one block over that stuck through the first hard rain. We weren't allowed out after dark. I don't know if he grew up there. If the ghost that rattled the windows and opened the kitchen door so much, he took it off its hinges, were the same ones that visited his own fitful child sleep. She left him the darkness, whispers in the framing, a slow leak of confidence out sleep cheaply insulated walls, the buzz of old alcohol soaking the carpet like gasoline. He will leave me only his ashes. I don't know what it will feel like to fight my brother, a doctor of other people's histories, over the confusion brought by the death of a man who has bought both burial plot and cremation. His death, easy. I'll pull the plug. I know, cause he asked me. I'll be the one who knows to commit his body to the oven. I will never put him in the ground. Never look down at him in a hole the same size as me. Those ashes I'll scatter under the seats of every airport, train station, bus, and ferry. Lightly dust the maps in every bookstore with traces of his bones. I will send him off post-Viking, flames the ends of fingertips, his raft the soles of shoes. The last eight ounces wrapped in brown paper sent off to a factory where if I pay them enough, they'll send him back to me in a velvet corded bag. Now a pressed jewel, aquamarine, a stone the same color as his eyes, that I'll have implanted under my tongue. And then maybe I can tell myself the story of how he really escaped that house. Foreclosure, failed arson, the moment where you're supposed to turn into the driveway, but instead keep driving and never go back. I'm like, do I have anything that isn't about dead people? Probably not. <laughs> like, I don't know. You tell me. Right? <laughs> oh, that's not about dead people. <laughs> it is about sexual assault. Let's lighten it up a little bit. Right? <laughs> <laughs> It's real good. It's real good though. You all, you've been warned. That is that is your trigger warning. Okie dokie. Uh, now it has to load. So now you have you have a moment. You have a moment to step away if need be. Okay. Um, it's called mushroom. So, I think I read this actually at Newport Challenge. Yeah, I did at my very first one. It's. A little bit different than it was that first time, but not very. Um, just, uh, it's a thing. So, one of my first clear memories is of a living cow. Stood on playground asphalt with a surgical hole in her side. The wound sealed with a latex glove. Grubby little hands directed to flick and pinch with curious fingers to squeeze her organs while she fed. I was twice as old as she was stomached. Across the neighboring soccer field, there were clusters of mushrooms, fungi edging out from dry clay soil, impervious to all threats, except a canvas-covered toe, kicking up caps, crushing stalks into crumble, kid catharsis in striated lumps. They'd grow back. They'd always grow back. In a week's time, Kidzilla could strike again, the fungal force an endless villain, Ouroboros in the playground. It was only crushing them that gave them the chance to rise again. Now, older, somewhat wiser, all I want is to crush to crumble a mushroom lump beyond window glare, to bind the pieces in a mesh cage, only porous enough to let fire catch atop a raft set out to sea. No spores to escape, no more infection, no regrowth, no recovery, no more breathing the same air as me. I catch her behind the glass, behind the counter, just a crosswalk between us, each day as I make my way out of work. I can smell her in the air as I step out, away from the protective shell of building. I've begun to think of her as a poisonous mushroom, flipped over, her tiny head an alcohol-pickled pinprick. Mm sunken into a cap round and bulbous, 
stink lines, danger lines, terror lines, coming off of her in cartoon waves. An acrid lashing, eroding amongst the earth shook pavement. A reminder, danger, danger, you will never be safe. My father used to, has always, will forever say, I feel like a mushroom. They keep me in the dark and only feed me bullshit. When the cupboards were their barest, he would direct me to add mushrooms to marinara from a small can still bigger than my child hands. The sliced gray chunks formed perfectly like a pizza topping toy, cap and stem split lengthwise, a picture of a real but impossible thing, like a tiny brain, a fungal MRI. Before plopping them into sauce, I'd dig one out, squeeze it between my fingers, waiting for the skin to give, hoping for a soft pop the split of a grape. My darkness was instead my blackout. Concussion. The bruise the size of a dinner plate that kept me from sitting for a week. The stain that kept showing up in my underwear. The blood creeping. The actual real problem, a confusion. My own. Only oil slick memory. There was no police report. No health insurance, so no doctor's office. It took longer than I would like to figure out what had gone wrong. My brain just couldn't reach beyond leaning on a wall wasted waiting for my cab, beyond inviting her home with me after she introduced herself by shoving me against the wall to kiss me, beyond pushing her off of me when she ham-fisted her way into my pants, in the cab, in front of her friends, in front of the cabbie, watching in the mirror, beyond the sound of my own voice saying, Dial it back three times, and then the word no. A split that sounds just like my head cracking against the wall. Beyond waking up alone in my own bed with a buzzing, not hangover familiar. The mushroom cloud is the cartoon sign for the end. You know when Wiley has reached the horizon, engulfed in explosion, cap, stem, ring, you know that the work is done. The roadrunner has won the prize to live, to run another day. But apocalypse comes shortly after the cloud, always after. Flakes that are not snow. Human skin now the rubber of canned mushrooms. Now my body the mushroom. Polyps lined up along the edges of my uterus, tugging the membranes of my colon, a spreading mysterious whispering cancer. But I know the truth. Her touch, a spore-like infection, my molecules confused, but sure, she does not belong here. Reveling in each surgical slice, a laser burning, keeping her from taking root. Just a little light mushroom, a little mushroom bisque. I'm glad we're not having pizza tonight. <laughs> I also would like to note that it is very hard to read that poem while this dog smiles. <laughs> his biggest smile ever at me. <laughs> oh, we are so lucky to have dogs. Yeah, it's true. So, your poems are usually um, emotional. <laughs> yes, they're all true. Yeah. My mom at one point um, said this thing to me. Mom, I should probably call her. And she's on my mind today. But um, she's like, Nance, you know that you know that 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 what you said isn't exactly true. I'm like, mm, yeah. It's called memory. It's called art. <laughs> like, it's called it's called a story. <laughs> like, she's like, well, yeah. I mean, it is mostly true. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I did say to someone earlier today I like tried to describe what my writing was like what did I say oh god it was so funny I'm so funny sometimes <laughs> um, uh, yeah I said my poems are absurdist sincerity jokes about trauma <laughs> <laughs> and well yeah, I'll stand by that. <laughs> it's not inaccurate. Yeah, right? that's true. It's not inaccurate. So. Oh, yeah, it's real. It's real. Um, I'm trying to figure out, like, do I have anything lightish? 
We could call them traumedies. Oh, traumedies. little traumedies. Yes. <laughs> I know. I'm like, let me read you a love poem about my cat. It's really about cremation. Everything's fine. <laughs> Everything is fine. Don't worry. I have a therapist. She's great. Um, yeah, no, all of... Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't get better. <laughs> I mean, I stand by my work, but... That's no, okay. I mean, this one is uh, about someone who isn't dead. Well, okay. Do you want them to be dead? <laughs> no, actually. Okay, well, that's... that's <laughs> <a proof. laughs> oh, life. I did have to recently give someone my enemies list, which was kind of fun. Um, <laughs> I did not ever expect to be a person with an enemies list, and yet, here I am. It's very short. You're not on it, Brew. <laughs> what kind of enemies list are we talking about? Like mortal enemies list? Because, you know, coming from a person who wrote a book about, you know. <laughs> right? Um, in this case, it oh, was. Oh, sorry. It was. Um, in this case, it was um, an enemies list for a dating show to make sure that no one was positioned as my suitor who was on my enemy list. So mostly it was just people that my ex-wife cheated with. Um, my ex-wife. <laughs> um, you know, the the uh, center of the mushroom poem. Uh, yeah, that's about it. But that turns out to be like six people. So. You gotta be careful with like dating shows. You know, because, like, there's that famous story of Rodney Alcala, the serial killer who went on the dating show. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, you didn't know about that. I did not know about this. One of the contestants on the dating game ended up being a serial killer. With, like, triple-digit kills. Wow! And she picked him. Did Harlan Ellison make it on a dating game and they kicked him off? Yeah, I think so. Wow. Yeah. Not not that Harlan Ellison was a serial killer. No, but... Not that we know of. Right? <laughs> you should totally go- Google that because it's, it's. Yeah, it's, yeah, I mean, it's two of my favorite things dating shows <laughs> and serial killers. killers. Yeah. Um, I do not believe that I interacted with any serial killers. I did also interact with someone who sold me a scooter in 2002. She's the one I picked. Um, she's just as shady as she was 17 years ago, <laughs> I'll tell you that. Um, it was not the meat cute of lasting love. Um, alas. But Brew did a very good job being on stage. Um, it was fun. It was fun. It was fun. I would do it again, even with the dramedy. <laughs> at least it wasn't dramedy. It, at least it wasn't dramedy. <laughs> we save that for the radio. We do. <laughs> we use that for art. So this person is not dead. This person is not dead, nor do I wish them to be. Okay. Okay. Um, this is called On Fire and Glass. Um, Brew keeps coming up to the microphone like he has something to say, so we'll see if anything comes of that. Uh, the first time she whimpered fire, I borrowed my roommate's car. Time traveled 19 minutes. Passcode, elevator, third floor, three doors down. Twist three turns left, close the blinds, flip one, flip two, flip three, switch. Turn out the lights. A hand passed softly over her back. It's okay, okay, okay. There's no smoke, no fire. The second time we spent Saturday night in the ER, my face beaming, nice white person. A fort of pillows built, a silent plea for her to stop screaming. As I attempted normalcy, attached nail polish stickers to nail after nail chewed ragged. The thing about seizures is there's nothing you can do. If they're not happening at the very exact moment that they decide it's time to test you. But the thing about seizures is that your actual brain changes every time they happen. More rattle, less you. What they don't tell you about chronic illness is that it does, in fact, literally become you. When the world is on fire, why not? 
smoked bath salts out of a corner store crack pipe, the rose long removed, swallow MDMA like candy, find any possible way to feel warm, to feel good. The thing they don't tell you about chronic illness is that some people just aren't great people. The bad behavior is bad behavior. The bad boyfriends come in all kinds of forms. One night I spent five hours picking splinters of glass out of the carpet, swept glinting shards out of the corners of the pantry, shook the shatter from the bedclothes, shards tapped from shoes and hats. It was like the contractor got it backwards, filled all the fire sprinklers with sparkling drops of glass. So the night I couldn't get her to stay on the phone, couldn't time travel, drive fast enough, alarm pulled, sprinkler sparking, glint and glitter, shrapnel sent to stop neural fire. Nothing was dry for weeks. I read somewhere that the particular delusion, earth, air, water, fire, is an attachment to particular trauma, but the story of the seizure is the story of how the brain survives. I just think dumb beasts love fire. That's one of my favorite. <laughs> Thanks. Oh, okay. So, um, I know you didn't bring anything new because you've been like super busy and stuff, but, but I I'm fell through a deck. <laughs> I know, you fell through a deck. Don't worry, it's later I'll write about falling through a deck. Yeah, you totally should <laughs> fall, write about falling through a deck. Oh, it will happen. <laughs> it will happen. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think. I did, I did almost write something the other day, but did I put it somewhere? Possible? But besides falling through a deck, what have you been up to? Um, I got a dog. That's a thing that I did with my life. Um, Good job. Thanks. I got a perfect dog. It's his. It's his fault. Um, and um, he's a one hundred percent Muppet. Thirteen pounds of Muppet. Only dog for me. Um, uh, you know, I've been cutting some hair after much PT so that I can do some hair. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's been a kind of bummer summer, and so all of my uh, exciting summer plans have turned into me watching a lot of murder TV. And yet, I still didn't know about this dating game crossover. Oh, man. <laughs> it was actually a crossover. <laughs> <laughs> it was a, a media event, clearly. <laughs> well, it did happen before you were born, so, you know. I know lots of things that happened before I was born. We could totally talk serial killers all night. Oh my god, so much murder. Yeah, but that's not what this show is about. Ah. <laughs> uh, which is funny because one of my clients earlier today was uh, uh, complaining about the world of podcasts and how everything is murder now. It's true. And um, be because of an assault injury and a traumatic brain injury, um, my audio processing is such that I can't listen to podcasts. <laughs> Um, disembodied voices are really hard for me to understand to a point that it's like exhausting so this whole world of media exists that I just can't access which is kind of cool because it means that people get to tell me about podcasts there isn't nearly as many as people think not enough <laughs> right well but so my client earlier today was complaining because like he was following a podcast that was about some sort of like you know cutesy Americana, Midwestern kind of storytelling thing. And then all of a sudden it just veers sideways into murder. He's like, I didn't sign up for murder. Do they all have to be murder? <laughs> like, apparently everything is murder now. Yeah. All the <laughs> podcasts I listen to are either about true crime or about politics. Mm -hmm. Or sports. So <laughs> sports is like the middle ground. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, isn't sports kind of like practicing to be good at murder? Kind or of. Politics. Or politics. Or politics. Right? I'm like, I feel like. <laughs> like... Plato, Plato thought uh, uh, sports or exercise were, was uh, practicing for war. 
Yeah. Right? Yeah. And if you think about it, it still is. Yeah, that's true. Including mm-hmm. video games. Yeah. Well, when you consider that, like, football, American football was modeled after the Romans' phalanx. Yep. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the only video game that I play is Stardew Valley. I spend a lot of time in Stardew Valley. Um, so, you know, what I practice is farming, which I do feel is, like, the most revolutionary act of war, which I can't do in real life because I don't like plants. Um, but like the other people like plants, <laughs> please farm. It's important. <laughs> I'm like, I'll practice deadlifting. I can I can move heavy things, and you can grow stuff, and we'll survive. Welcome to the apocalypse. It'll be fine. Want to do another poem, Nancy? Well, fine. <laughs> I'm doing a really good job talking. Everything's fine. Didn't mean to interrupt that. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Like, of course, I closed, I closed the zap. It's like my body is like, but we could be playing Stardew right now. <laughs> like, that's for later. That's your reward. <laughs> um. Okay, I do, I do have more, right? I did. Did where'd it go? Oh, there it is. Uh. So, Drew, don't look at me like that. Um, This one's called Oh Brother. (laughs) Also not dead. Um, (laughs) When I stepped off the plane 24 hours from my front door to meet him and the suitcase holding his material life, he said, face flat, serious, you have an addiction and it's going to hurt. He was talking about my main line of caffeine, the number of euros it would take to keep me in coffee, but for a moment, I wondered what he knew that I didn't. Before the last time when I could not decipher spaghetti sauce from blood, there was the first time I ever threw up on purpose. It was after he said, you sound like a pig when you're eating. We'd abandoned my mother then, were old enough to tell the court that I, the youngest, wanted to cross to the wrong side of the tracks to live in our father's house. Maybe the year or the week before, we stood in the flat, dead grass of the backyard, fenceless. Clapboard stairs stumbling in pieces from the back door, the shed, half-painted, half-leaned against the neighbor's fence, held up really by the fig tree. The chunk of concrete I'm still convinced was poured over someone's dead baby, next to the plot where one year my father's obsession was a garden he tended haphazard until it failed to yield anything of measure and he got bored. It was there, in the center of things decayed, abandoned, hidden, where he, my sweet-faced brother, said, if you keep mixing drugs like this, you're going to die. Like that wasn't already a potential outcome, like I wasn't testing the edges to see where they lie. lighthearted to family uh, family stuff it's like not dark but like shaded (laughs) (laughs) I mean one of the best things is that um, as a person who uh, you know my self described fashion is along the lines of like drunken alien toddler (laughs) Um, and um, I often refer to myself as human cartoon and nobody has fought me on that um, and so I will come into spaces to do readings and look like myself and I will be my cheerful self and now I got this cute dog um, and people are like oh you're Nisi you're so fun I'm like sometimes <laughs> and then I start reading and like watching people's faces go what <laughs> is actually one of my favorite things Nancy I once had a summation of your poetry I was going to use but I tell it to you now but it, I swear it's really good I'm, I'm listening it's like a portrait of a guillotine drawn by Lisa Frank <laughs> yes <laughs> someone make that for me my birthday's in February <laughs> that would be a great tattoo Right? <laughs> Just like saying. A, like a watercolor Lisa Frank tattoo. Of a guillotine. <laughs> That's what we call on brand. 
I already have two unicorns, but because all of my tattoos actually involve animals at some point, there yeah, there does need to be an animal. Do you want to be the brute executioner? <laughs> no. Okay. It's we'll, not brute. We'll, we'll be it out. someone else. I already have a tattoo of chicken, or else it would suit her perfectly. <laughs> it would suit her perfectly. <laughs> She's very salty. She would love to murder. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> um. I think I have one. I have one more. Okay. Is that a thing? That's a thing. That's a thing. Is that, <laughs> have I done enough? <laughs> I'm like, I promised Brew that we'd run zoomies. It was a lie because I can't run right now. <laughs> Don't tear a ligament in your foot, kids. It's not fun. Um, all right, this one is called Why I Will Never Be a Hand Model. 13 years old, during assembly, I carved a pentagram into my hand with a safety pin. You can still see it. A white flash of triangles in the right light. I will never get to anybody's Christian heaven, which is fine. None of my friends will be there. I used to chew my fingernails to nothing, now into shapes, prettier, but sometimes. I chew along the edges, cuticles raw red snags, dead skin peeled back too far, to blurred pink laced with blood. Zoomed in, you can see the map of the parts of me that are missing. There's always a cat scratch healing somewhere, despite sharing a weirdness, a shifting mood, a magnet of safety, of sameness. When a cat is done playing, they will cut you open, no matter how much they like you, even when you're the keeper of the food. In my work life, a hairdresser wielding shears honed to cut to bone, hashtags clipped into the sides of fingers, carrot edits by a slipped nip of the blade. An iron tur turned to 425 degrees, dropped and caught hot plate to palm. The daily chemistry, acid and alkaline, peroxide to bleach. I apply color like a tiny tornado, always forgetting to wear gloves. Bleach burned in just enough to leave fingerprints shiny but legible. Always a stain from dyes direct and oxidize. Today's color, a story painting my fingers. The edge is often violet, blue, as if I've been dead for days. So no, I'm never gonna get to be a hand model. I know all about the color and the... It's true. And the lack of gloves thing. Yeah. So. I try sometimes. Sometimes. My um, very intense art teacher from high school um, was always yelling about how try doesn't exist, which is what I hear every time I say, but I tried. I'm like, no, you didn't. You didn't do. I'm like, oh, Stilly, what are you doing in my head? Who's your teacher, Yoda? <laughs> I mean, sometimes much meaner. She's great, though. But. Yeah, 20 years later, she's still yelling at me in my head. Good job, silly. Good job. <laughs> well, you've been listening to Talking Earth on KBOO, and we've been listening to Nancy Deer. And I have been Amanda Hellstrom-White. And I have been Sophia Hellstrom-White. I'll continue to be after this <laughs> I might change my mind and be somebody else. It's hard to say. I'm going to be Nancy Deer, and I'm going to be grateful for you having me here. Thank you. Well, thanks very much, and thanks to Patrick Burkhardt for um, being our sound engineer. Thank you. And uh, thanks for your time. And have a great night. Hello, Talking Earth listeners. This is Sophia Hellstrom-White. Since this broadcast ran a little short, I thought I would give you an update on how Amanda and I are doing. As some of you may know, we moved to Las Vegas in November of 2019, but promised to come to visit to record new episodes of Talking Earth because we truly love this show, its readers, and its listeners. This was the last episode we had recorded in Portland. 
Travel is obviously out of the question with the scourge of COVID-19 in the world currently, but we will be recording new episodes of Talking Earth from our home in Vegas and sending them to our faithful sound engineer, Patrick Bocard, to be edited for your listening pleasure. I would like to talk a little about what caused us to move from Portland and how life is currently. Moving from Portland was honestly a very difficult decision for the two of us to make, and it was particularly difficult to me as I consider myself improved and strengthened for my, by my 18 years of living here. I came here as a barely 21-year-old dysphoric and drug-addicted mess, with a lot of PTSD due to parts of my rural upbringing, and I left as a strong woman with self-esteem, the ability to be able to care for myself and love myself, and married to the most incredible person I know. These moments will always be precious to me, even among the difficulties that came with them, making friendships that felt genuine for perhaps the first time in my life, the working of mundane jobs that left me with enough energy to get pumped up on coffee and fill a cheap notebook with my rantings that I tried shaping to poetry. The rituals I threw myself into in the name of redeeming myself with the titles of writer or artist or poet. The times of when the jobs laid me off and it was raining so hard on the walk home that I was not even to tell if I was crying. Those were not always the best days, but they were days that built me. We all have these stories. And sometimes it is vital to our well-being to tell these stories, and it's always as vital to hear them as well. It reminds us of what the human condition is, the search for each other, and the search for ourselves. We search through our actions and through reactions of each other. The stress of the Portland rental crisis and the rise in hate crimes against members of the LGBTQ community in Portland were also taking an immense toll on us. It resulted in two of us dreading t the routine of waking up and preparing to go to work, etc. The idea that both of us had well-paying jobs were, were constantly broke. Amanda asking me not to present female when running errands when she heard of another attack. There had been at least four brutal attacks on trans women when we left, as well as on gay and lesbian couples. It was an extremely taxing time, and we were left with ambivalent feelings that we could not live here anymore, but also feeling like we could not believe like we could not leave our beloved city in such a dire time of need. We made the choice to save our sanity and ourselves, but to try and keep as many of our connections as possible to our beloved PDX. When in the spring we had decided to leave Portland, when our lease was up at the beginning of November. We quickly settled on Las Vegas, Nevada as our new home, mostly because it had so many of the things we came to love about Portland, an amazing food scene, a very high transgender population, and entertainment everywhere you went. And there was the added bonus of extremely low cost of living in comparison. We are living in a four bedroom, in a two bedroom apartment for $600 less than we were paying for our studio in Portland. Our original plan was to be in Portland around the time of this broadcast to record a few more episodes and to see some of our friends. But then the coronavirus hit. Again, my heart is with you, Portland. I know how strong the people are there, from the people who have lived there for 25 plus years before I ever ventured that way, to the people who just unpacked their bags last year thinking of making a life there. I am settling I am currently sitting in my Vegas apartment writing my latest comic book script, wishing I could send supplies to all of my Portland lovelies. But keep but perhaps the best I can do for you now is promise that Amanda and I will do everything we can to keep delivering quality shows to you via Talking Earth, which has proven to be a Portland institution since the early nineteen seventies. Stay strong, Portlanders. In my soul I am still one of you. This message was Sophia and Amanda Hellstrom White, you are listening to KBOO FM Portland. You are listening to KBOO Portland, 90.7 on your FM dial. You have just listened to the Talking Earth. Before the next show, 
here is an important message I will reiterate. I want to remind everyone that you can donate today at kboo.fm slash giving online. We know times are tough, so if you're not able to donate, that's fine. But if you can, please show your support for this free community resource. Uh, plus, all donations will be matched until You are listening May to KBOO, Portland, Oregon, 90.7 FM on your Portland dial, KBOO.FM on your everywhere on earth internet dial. Stay safe, stay sane, stay tuned. KBOO.